This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. I want to take a moment to say I hope you are safe and healthy. Thank you for tuning in to this hour of togetherness, where we discuss what unites rather than divides us. Coming up, an interview with Sajil Shaw, author of This Is One Way to Dance. That's one of the things I love about fiction, actually, that it allows you, I think, to go to places that it's harder to go to in sometimes in nonfiction. We'll be back with Sajil Shaw in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. For the last seven years, I've been producing at least 40 episodes a year of First Draft. It's a labor of love, but there is also labor involved, time and effort and thought. Whether this is your first listening experience or you are on your 300th episode, I am asking you with humbleness and appreciation if you would consider supporting First Draft as a donating member. You can learn more and donate at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Your support helps keep conversations like the one you are about to hear going. As our society is changing to independent folks like me producing rich and meaningful content, like that on First Draft, we are simultaneously expanding the diversity of voices available for the public. This effort takes money, time, equipment, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. I know there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense to make. As a thank you for joining the First Draft community, I offer my patrons a lot of extras, the best being ad-free and pitch-free episodes. As a thank you for your patronage, I get you to the interview faster because you'll get your own dedicated feed without this ask. No please, no ads. Also, starting at just $6 a month, you will receive extras from the shows, including cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final episode, writing tips from featured authors, books, and a monthly newsletter. I am also very grateful. I often send extra goodies to my patrons. Please beat the odds of having to listen to this pitch seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate any amount, and you know it will go to the continuation of these conversations focused on literary craft, content, and practice. I know that it's unlikely you are in front of a computer right now, so I'd like to suggest adding a little reminder for yourself for when you get home to contribute to First Draft. Maybe make a note on your phone, an ink mark on your hand, scribble on a piece of paper, something along the lines of, First Draft, reminder, membership matters. Again, patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned at the end of this show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you so much. My guest today is Sejal Shaw, fiction writer, essayist, and poet. Her work has appeared in Conjunctions, Kenyon Review, Literary Hub, and The Rumpus. She teaches creative writing at Writers and Books in Rochester, New York. Her essay collection, This is One Way to Dance, is a meditation on identity and belonging. Shaw is the daughter of Gujarati parents who immigrated to the United States from India and Kenya, and her writing reflects the tension of being an insider, an outsider, 
being visible and invisible in America. Her essays reflect on dating, weddings, childhood, travel, belonging, parental expectation, and breaking boundaries in the effort to learn and grow. Shaw and I went to the same high school in a suburb of Rochester, New York, so I was intimately familiar with the childhood she described. We began the discussion reflecting on the education we received in a school system that was widely known for its focus on excellence. I feel like Brighton was just really rigorous and also conscious of itself as being that way. That's what I remember, but I'm also, I'm looking at a kid's book that I have called Tiger on the Mountain, and Miss Haugi, who was my fourth grade teacher, gave me this book, and it's about a family in India. And I loved that it felt like reading was really important there. I mean, my parents chose, you know, very specifically to live in Brighton. They knew that the schools were good. They were lucky that they could. But I I was always really aware also of, you know, like East High being right there and that there was a real discrepancy, you know, very close by. Right. But Brighton was part of the Coalition of Essential Schools through Brown University. I remember in the 80s, it was nationally ranked. And then you had the city school district with so many problems. And there was a, an English teacher who was killed at East High, I remember. And that I was always really aware of that, too. A kind of one of the themes in your book that you mentioned in an essay, but it went all the way through, is the idea of, of invisibility or hypervisibility, that, that being other and being brown in this country and in the situations you've been in in your life, you feel like it's either that people don't see you or that people see you and they're like, hey, you know, I, I want to tell you about my experience with India <laughs> or something like that. So I did feel hyper visible in middle school in a way that I really disliked. But I also think that I think part of it was the composition of honestly, French Road at that time, the neighborhoods that it was drawing from. So you had some of the wealthiest areas in Brighton, and I think some of the the poorest. You know, there was a real division, I felt, socioeconomically there, too. I think I always felt uncomfortable feeling as though I was um, supposed to walk around like a history book for people or, you know, <laughs> to, to tell me, you know, want to tell me about how much they love Indian food or, you know... Um, but but part of it is that we weren't taught very much about it. Let's talk a little bit more, though, about these themes of invisibility or hypervisibility, because they are, you know, embedded in, in your essays and in your life. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about that in general in your life. And I'm also curious if because you were the only one in your family born in the USA, if that had a different impact on you than them because they knew the country they came from. It's interesting. Um, they haven't read the book yet. <laughs> I did give um, a copy to my parents, and I mean, I don't think my brothers read it yet. So um, I don't know. I know that we we were always very, you know, he was aware of having this lived experience in India, even though he was quite young, and I was aware that 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 I didn't have that, and so I, you know, people would want to talk to me about being Indian and. Certainly, I knew things about it, and I was growing up in an, in an Indian family in a Gujarati family, and that's what we spoke at home. But it was um, it felt frustrating to not have the firsthand experience, and to also be in a in an educational curriculum that really didn't teach that much about the rest of the world. 
So I think it the burden falls on, I think, the, the person. Um, that's how I experienced it. But I, again, I feel like there's really, it's hard to say, I think Maxine Hong Kingston says this in the, in the Woman Warrior, right? Like Chinese Americans, what's, you know, what, what is your own family and what's the movies? Because you're getting it all secondhand. Well, what about this concept of invisibility or hypervisibility? Can you share more about what that felt like in your life and how you translated that into these essays? I was really aware of Rochester and the city and the suburbs being really segregated. We were one of three Indian families in our neighborhood, and there was one Black family. I was always really aware of that and, and um, like bean counting. If I was looking at an anthology, I would look to see, you know, who who's in here um, by their names. Is there someone who's who's Indian um, or who's Asian American? And I wonder if I'd grown up in a different place. Like my cousins grew up in California and in in Queens and in Edison, New Jersey, where there are much you know larger immigrant populations and Asian American populations, where maybe that wouldn't have been part of what I was interested in at all. I think here it it felt like we knew most of the other Indian families, but also oddly, like I, my parents' closest friends uh, and their kids were not in Brighton. So we both had these friends who were around, but they weren't, um, I think in that way, it, maybe it's, you know, it's, it's similar to any religious uh, community, uh, like having camp friends or church friends that you know in a different way outside of school. And I, I wrote about that in the, in the first, in the opening essay in the book, Skin. And I, I had a, a friend from college say, you know, I'm so sorry that, you know, that a guy said that to you. And I thought, it, Skin was originally a short story, but it was more, I think more than, I felt like more than it being about me, it was more about what is, what is it like to be in a landscape that sees you as other. There was, there was something so odd to me about that experience in that you're just yourself walking through the world and seeing the world. But I think my experience of being a brown person in a white environment is having to brace yourself to, to hearing other people's reactions about you and, and the feeling that they can ask about your heritage, which you may or may not be interested in. I remember I met, I met this guy at a party, um, in New York and he was Indian American and I asked him where he was from. And I was curious, um, I guess I want—I wanted to know what language he spoke. I think he was Bengali. I ended up dating the guy that he was with, and so he, you know, he told me that. But he just would not answer. He just said he was from Ossining, New York. Like he just would not go there. <laughs> and he knew the the guy that I ended up dating um, from NYU. But I remember being so irritated with him, and also sort of respecting that he was just not interested in having that conversation at a party in New York. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And that essay, Skin, it's pretty short. 
It's like a confessional tone where you're saying, this is what the white boys say and what they say about you. And this is what the black boys say. And and the brown boys are silent. And so you're kind of talking about your relationship to them. And the white boys and the black boys have so many words, but the brown boys have no words. You know, I was thinking about this the other day. I mean, again, I think I was thinking about the industries when we were growing up here with Xerox and Kodak and um, the universities and what brought Indian immigrants to the area at that time in the 60s when um, a lot of our, our parents came. And I think it's also it's specific in a way to Amherst, which well, one I was in I was in an English department, but I was thinking about the fact the other day, sort of randomly, that UMass Amherst doesn't have a medical school there, right? It, that's in Worcester. It does have science and business, but it, very much the world I was in felt pretty monochromatically white. And I think there was a there was an anxiety there for lots of reasons, and one had to do with like what's happening to higher ed. Like there weren't enough jobs, and there was this sense of like if you are a person of color, you're going to get a you know you you'll get the job because of you know diversity. But if you look to see who has tenured jobs, who has tenure, who's a full professor, um, I don't those numbers don't bear out. out. I think I, I had a lot of fun with that essay. I wrote it, I think, when I got back from from India. And um, I, the first time I read it was at a, a reading that I put together for writers of color. And I don't think I ever could have read it in at the MFA program's reading series. It just, it was so white there. I think that this essay also is about the things that I couldn't say then. And so I gave space to other people's words, but right. This is what the white boys would say. Um, and then the black boys. And I, I almost, I cut this or I added a, a, a footnote at one point. Um, so the problem with white boys is not just that they're white, that they would even think such things. The problem with back black boys is not only that they're black, that they would constantly be trying to cop a feel. And I thought, well, that sounds racist, you know, reading this, 15 years later, you know, particularly after Ferguson and just saying, what does it, okay, why did I write that? And, and then I thought about the fact that, um, I had a professor who sexually harassed me in grad school. He was a black man. And I think that that was one of the places I could write about it because I wrote about it as fiction. That's one of the things I love about fiction, actually, that it allows you, I think, to go to places that it's harder to go to in sometimes in nonfiction. But I think you came to nonfiction later. So share the the transition about that for you. I had started to write some um, nonfiction, like the, the essay um, about traveling in Sicily that came out of a, a travel journalism class I took. I think part of it was that my that my work was being off was often read, and I think this is true often for writers of color was read autobiographically, whether or not it actually was. And um, I sometimes have mixed feelings about that because I think like Married was a short story and I, and I could turn it into an essay with changing almost nothing, which made me think about, you know, why was it a short story? But for me, it really was about a voice and characters. Um, and I was working with with a lot of autobiographical material, but that in a way that wasn't what was most important to me about it as a story. 
but I, I saw that at that at a certain point I had written and published more nonfiction, and so I could I I saw that it fit within what I was doing in other essays, but I had not originally conceived of it as an essay. In fact, I started out with a hybrid manuscript that was half fiction and half nonfiction, and I didn't. I didn't label what was fiction and what wasn't. And what I realized when um, I'd had some editors look at it and got some feedback was that, and agents as well, I think that people were um, reading the fiction as nonfiction. But I, I wonder, you know, I, I would think about writers like Alice Monroe and Juno Diaz, who I think are also working with some autobiographical material, certainly a writer like John Updike, and I feel like there's a lot of leeway given to using that material, but also understanding that it's fiction. And I think that 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 sometimes that um, writers of color want to be I don't know if it's a it's a pressure in the publishing industry, you know, but to have um, like did this happen to have a, a narrative that can be con- consumed as I guess as autobiography. And did did something change for you when you turn this into essays? Like, did you feel like the responses could be more authentic from you or the readers? Or did it take pressure off of you? Or did you find out that it mattered in in a way that you didn't think it would? It's a good question. I mean, skin sometimes, skin still feels like it's I mean, maybe in in the line of like, since I mentioned Gino Diaz, like how to date a brown girl, black girl, white girl, or halfy, like in that where the speaker has a lot in common with what we might know about Gino Diaz from his bio um, or what he's said in in interviews, but he published it as a short story. This this essay, Betsy, Tacey, Sagel, and Tib, was mm-hmm. was about that none of the books you read as a kid really had a reflection of you and your life and your friends. And so you're talking a lot about these kind of standard stories that are written about white girls who probably have very nice, perfect lives or always end up with a good ending. Were you conscious when you were young that they didn't look like you? Or did that come to you sort of slowly and later? That's a great question. Um, I don't remember being conscious of it as a child, but it's because like nothing around me looked like me. (laughs) Um, You know, just we were watching Moonlighting um, or 30 something or Cheers um, and we're reading Anne of Green Gables and Betsy Tacey Tibb and Nancy Drew. And I don't know if I even had the expectation that there could be that then. I just, I, I just loved reading so much. I just, I loved being able to read in, into these other worlds. I think it was, I, I, I was older when I even started to think like, okay, this is, this is odd. Like, what is the effect of consuming all this, you know, all these hours of watching the Brady Bunch or whatever we were watching and never seeing anyone that looks like you? Because in your essays, you talk a lot about your childhood growing up and that you had a very strong Indian community around you that you spent a lot of holidays with. I mean, you had those people, but they weren't necessarily at your school or maybe in your neighborhood. These things that you talk about in your book, did you ever talk about them with your parents? Did you ever come home from school and say, you know, talk about any of these feelings about being the other 
even if you couldn't articulate it, were they talks that they had? Because I imagine your parents felt the same way. I don't know if they did. They were, they, you know, I think that when you're immigrants and you're just, it's, you know, you're just dealing with figuring out what the system is and your job and making enough money. I don't know that you have that kind of time to think about it. I mean, I feel like it's, it's a, it's a luxury of the second generation. Um, This was painful for me, though. I mean, I remember that I said, you know, can I go to the other middle school, right? We lived closer to 12 Corners. My mother, we talked about this recently, and I think she did go talk to the principal. But, you know, he said, you know, we can't do that because then we'd have to do that for every person. And having worked in schools and having seen, you know, some pretty, I don't I don't know if that's right to say appalling behavior, but pretty entitled behavior from parents. I know now that, in fact, if she were a different person, you know, she even has siblings who, you know, maybe would go and say, you know what, I think that this this school or this situation is racist for my kid and I, I need her to be in a different in the other school. It's not a healthy situation for her. But I think for them, it was like, this is school. You have this is what you have to do. They, they really believe that you follow what the what the school says. And I really believe that schools can be wrong. That was painful for me on the other, you know, I don't know what the answer is, but I've certainly seen from having worked in schools that, you know, the squeaky wheel gets the grease that, that there were parents who knew how to work the system. My parents trusted the Brighton schools. I think they were wise to choose the school district that they did. But um, one of the things I was very lucky about was having a brother who'd gone through school ahead of me. So I learned how to advocate for myself better through him wasn't something I could really speak to my parents about. One of the things that you said in one of your essays that reminds me of some of this, the information, uh, some of the content that we're talking about is it was in an essay called The World is Full of Paper, Write to Me. And you wrote, I believe in self-definition. And the essay is about a teacher that you had at, Mm -hmm. um, that you had originally met at, um, or saw speak. Uh, he's a poet. His name is. It's Aga Shahid Ali. So he, and he went by Shahid. He became a teacher of yours. Can you talk about this essay and what he gave to you and how in, in talking about writing, you came up with this line, I believe, in self-definition, because you're talking a lot about poetry in this essay. Yeah, thanks for asking about that. Um, so the world is full of paper, write to me, um, are the closing lines of a poem of Shahid's that I always loved called Stationary. And he is part of the reason that I applied to UMass Amherst, even though he was in poetry and I I applied in fiction. You know, I was excited about the idea of studying with someone who was Indian American. That was an experience where I learned also that you're not going to know ahead of time necessarily who your mentors are going to be. And that essay is one that grew out of my remarks at his memorial service. He died young in his in his fifties, and I spoke it at um at his memorial service at UMass in two thousand and two, and then I lost those notes. I I wrote I wrote up what I was going to say right before on the department computer, and I I didn't email it to myself. I didn't save it. I just had this one printout. I knew I wanted to turn that into an essay, but 
I didn't find the pages again uh, for over 10 years, I think. They were in my parents' basement, and I was living in New York and in Iowa and, and all over the place. So when I wrote the essay, I wrote it and published it in 2013 on the anniversary of his passing. So it was still written in this kind of, in, in a, as a tribute to him. And when I was putting the manuscript together, I realized, you know, that my thinking had changed about teaching and what it means to mentor. And while I wouldn't have said this in a eulogy, it did hurt my feelings. I had expected a lot from him, maybe too much. Um, I think that we do expect a lot from our teachers and teachers have a lot of students. I'm glad that I honored my disappointment too. And I, I also just loved him and it I am grateful that I was able to study with him. And I think it's a, a more truthful essay for it not just to be the eulogy version. I think I had expectations of, you know, what is a teacher who I share a cultural background going to be like? And of course, it, we shared some of a cultural background and then in other ways were, were very different. And I do think that, that you get to decide how much that comes into play. As a teacher, as a writer, as a person, I think it connects back to what I was saying about that young man I met at a party who, when I said, well, where are you, where are you from? Where are your parents from? I mean, he just said, I'm from Ossining. I'm from outside New York City. And, and that was it. Barthi Mukherjee, who was, who was saying that she didn't want to be read as a hyphenated American. She wanted to be seen as an American writer. And, and I get that. In fact, someone recently referred to me as an Indian hyphen American author. And that, that felt very kind of like 80s language to me. I'm not sure I even knew I felt that way until I saw it. And I thought, wow, that's, I would probably say I'm a writer. I'm American. I'm South Asian American. I'm Gujarati. But really, those, those questions are really about like, who's asking you and what the context of the situation is. I don't walk around myself thinking, here I am, an Indian hyphen American author. I just am a, you know, a writer at her computer. Well, one of the things that you said in another essay that you mentioned earlier called The Wilderness is Not Permanent was, all my life I've been biking with brakes on. And this, this essay, it was a longer essay, and it's about your experience going to Burning Man in Black Rock Desert in Nevada, an annual festival that has grown to over 70,000 people for a week. And you really wanted to go, and you kind of ended up going by yourself with kind of adjacent with other people. Can you talk about this essay and then that line about biking with the brakes on? Yeah, thank you. I went to Burning Man in 2012 and I started writing the essay later that year. I wasn't able to finish it. I couldn't figure out how to close it down and there I had to cut a lot out. I guess it was even it was even longer. But I I learned to ride a bike late and I think I always I was just worried a lot and it was it was I, I didn't want to fall so you know it just seemed like to learn how to ride a bike you have to be okay with falling and I wasn't particularly interested in falling luckily I somehow managed to learn how to ride a bike which is still a real a pleasure I feel like being on a bike I was lucky with that this essay that I ended up working on it for conjunctions and for theme issue it was called nocturnal so in revising it I focused more on night imagery and I worked with the editor Bradford Morrow who was really amazing and and 
he helped and I spent a, a long weekend at Saltonstall in Ithaca in their off season. And I was with my friend, Leslie Roberts, who's a, a painter and a wonderful reader as well. And I had an ex-boyfriend in the essay. I, I had other characters and she was just like too much, too much, cut, cut, cut. So a lot of it was cutting it, cutting away to get to what the heart of the essay was. The book took a long time to come together to go through the review process. But one of, I think, the real benefits of that for me is I didn't finish this essay until last year, and it wasn't in my original manuscript. It wasn't until I was revising it, and I thought, oh, what would this, what would it be like to add this essay? And several people have told me that I think it has, it changes the book to have this essay in it. I think it widens it somehow. I'm glad for that. I think it really is about fear, facing your fear. Yeah, I think a lot of the essays, you have a lot of essays about weddings, um, Rochester, where you grew up, your your heritage, and then all of a sudden you're in this crazy festival (laughs) in the dust and dirt and loud music and, you know, waking up and there's like sexual things going on and you're (laughs) like trying to figure out how to get back to San Francisco and it's cold. It's so cold at night. And so it's like, there's a lot of sensations going on in that essay. Yeah. There were a lot of sensations uh, at Burning Man. I mean, I, I'm, I'm glad that it, that it moved kind of the range of the collection beyond just like heritage and, and weddings. I think the, my concern about the essay was my family reading it. And I remember talking to my husband about it and he said, you know, they're probably not going to read it. So <laughs> it was definitely one that gave me pause before adding it. And I'm glad that I did. I'm glad that I put it in. You know, when you're writing essay in particular, although I think it does happen with fiction because people often assume that the story is something about your life, you know, so if you write Mm -hmm. about being maybe attacked, people think you were attacked. Or if you write about winning the lottery, they think all these things happen to you. But when you're writing essays, you're really bearing yourself. And, And I've been in classes and had discussions with people about like, I can only write certain things when my parents are no longer I was pretty unhappy about some things that happened around my wedding. And at one point, my mother said, you know, this involves some family members. Don't, you know, can you please not write about that? And I believe in the, you know, the Anne Lamott thing, right? Like if people wanted you to, what is it? Um, they should have behaved better. <laughs> like you own everything that's happened to you. And I said, I, I, if I wrote something about the wedding, and I did, but I have a lot, I have a lot that I wrote that's not in the book and that's not in, in the essays that are in the book. But I said it would be because I'm trying to figure something out about my life and my truth and my experience of it, not about trying to get back at someone. But I, I said to my mother, I don't think it's fair to ask me to not do that. That's what I I, I'm a writer. That's what I do. In that essay, Saris and Sorrows, yeah. you write about how your father-in-law like really went all out and planned this and that you didn't want an elaborate wedding. You know, you have two saris to wear and you have the Tamil culture and the Gujarati culture that are mm-hmm. are different and doing rituals according to your husband's family, not yours. And at one point you say it was not my wedding. Yeah, I think that at at one point, that's what it felt like. I'm, 
the things that were hardest for me I, are not actually even in this essay. We had some extended family on my side and family friends who I thought were really behaved horribly. I, I think I have a lot of compassion for my in-laws because I think, oh, I didn't go through what they went through to lose a child in their 20s it, who was in his 20s. I mean, to to go through that, I think I didn't understand until I went through the wedding that it did in a way have nothing to do with me. Of course it had to do with me, but it was about their their loss and their wishes for their their other son. So I was horrified to see the the different parts of people that weddings can bring out. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Thank you for this question. I'm going to read um, the beginning of Margaret Atwood's essay, Nine Beginnings. And it's in a book called The Writer on Her Work, Volume 2, New Essays in New Territory, edited by Janet Sternberg. And I write in the beginning of my books where and when I bought them. So this is September 1995, Boston. And I realize now it's a kind of lyric essay, but I wouldn't have known that term when I first read it and when I first taught it. She asks the question nine times, why do you write? This is number one. Why do you write? I've begun this piece nine times. I've junked each beginning. I hate writing about my writing. I almost never do it. Why am I doing it now? Because I said I would. I got a letter. I wrote back, no. Then I was at a party and the same person was there. It's harder to refuse in person. Saying yes had something to do with being nice, as women are taught to be, and something to do with being helpful, which we are also taught. Being helpful to women, giving a pint of blood, with not claiming the sacred prerogatives, the touch-me-not self-protectiveness of the artist, with not being selfish, with conciliation, with doing your bit, with appeasement. I was well brought up. I have trouble ignoring social obligations. Saying you'll write about your writing is a social obligation. It's not an obligation to the writing. And then number two, why do you write? And it goes on. Do you want to share more about why you chose that? I structured my own introduction to my book with numbers like this, I think, and then felt like it was too much baggage. But I just, I loved the range in this. I love the the spirit and the anger. And I, I love, I love the way that it's structured, just sort of asking this question again and again, why do you write? And, um, and all the different answers. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. I'm going to read the beginning of my essay, Ring Theory, which first appeared also in an anthology called Strange Attractors, Lives Changed by Chance. Um, that was published by UMass Press last year. So I wrote this as, with the prompt that was suggested for the book, and I realized later that I didn't, I didn't really answer the prompt at all. But I was thinking a lot about talismans and jewelry and my ambivalence about engagement rings and wedding jewelry. So this is just the first section called Yellow Gold. Six months after my husband tied an ornate gold Mongol sutra around my neck and friends showered us with rice, I chose a wedding ring. Under the noontime Chennai sun, the center stone glowed, a cabochon dome. Inside the store, the ring spoke quietly, reserved, a dark, almost dull magenta set with two tiny diamonds. Yellow gold, typical Indian gold, South Indian temple style setting. I picked this ring halfway around the world from where we live in Rochester, at a store in Chennai my parents-in-law have frequented for years. 
They designed my wedding necklace here and bought the other jewelry I wore, all of it presented as part of the ceremony. I had not chosen any of this adornment. It was, as per tradition, my in-law's choice. Do you want to share anything else about that? I worked on that first part a lot because there's trying to figure out which details were most important to both describe the piece of jewelry and also to describe the setting, ground myself in that scene um, and set that scene in Chennai, but also place when it was happening in time and have Rochester and Chennai in there. So feels good to read it now because I, I know how much I worked to get all of that in and to figure out which details were extraneous and which ones felt important. Where do you write? At my desk, at cafes, in bed, sometimes even in the bathtub where I also like to read. And what do you do or where you, do you go to get away from writing? Walk, bath, yoga, nap. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Sometimes my husband, two of my longtime readers are um, Seattle-based writer Wendy Call and Holly Renspalding, who's a poet and teacher based in Maine. Wendy's a nonfiction writer and Holly is a poet and essayist, and they're both terrific editors and experienced teachers. I have a practice of writing postcards to both of them, which I wrote about in one of the essays in my book. How have you dealt with rejection? I counsel myself to do what a, quote, mediocre white man, or maybe any man would do, make the ask, the pitch, send another email, maybe one more than I'm comfortable sending. You know, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. So early on, I had some success, and I didn't realize how persistent one needs to be in the long view to continue writing over a long a lifetime. Some accomplished writers on Twitter were talking about how many times they applied to MFA programs before getting in. I applied once, and luckily I did get into a good program the only time I applied, but I realized I have to be more willing to put myself out there. I've let rejection derail me in the past, and I'm focusing now on sending one more email than I'm comfortable doing. I've seen it work. And what is your favorite word? As a kid, crisp. Now, in English, diaphanous, palimpsest, in Gujarati, kale. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Mitzi. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Sejal Shaw, author of This Is One Way to Dance. If you like today's show, check out my interview with Amitava Kumar, author of Immigrant Montana, a book which looks at one man's experience settling into American academic life after spending his early years in his native India. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of more than 290 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Michelle Bowdler, Ursula Hagee, and Aral Mazes. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. 
The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.